24 Cross Media. All right, GMAC and Winnie coming at you with another edition of the Outlaw Blitz interview podcast. Big fella, let's get dangerous. Been looking forward for this one for a little while now. Uh, on the line today, we have Mr. Brian Solomon, uh, pro- professional wrestling guru, author, and uh, Survivor Series attendee. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing okay, guys. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, I just I feel like I just got back like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how was the show in person? Um, well, I have to say, I, well, I took my kids, so that was a big reason why I wanted to go. My son is four, and he's a, becoming a huge fan now. My other son is 17. I've been taking him to shows for like 11 years now. Um, but it, I, I'm going to be honest, I didn't say this to them because I didn't want to down their spirits and be like the bummer dad. But it's, um, I don't know how it came off live on TV, but it was definitely the worst pay-per-view I have ever been to live. It came off on TV. The exact as, same way as you described it. Yeah, formulaic and basically a, a three-hour-plus Monday Night Raw. It was, it was completely stagnant. Yeah. And I couldn't understand it because I'm sitting there and I'm going, and I could just feel it. And even when the show was not yet on the air, um, when they had the pre-show, there were just these long stretches of complete, deadness like that where there was nothing they weren't you know uh playing any videos they weren't they didn't have anybody out there to warm the crowd up it was, even my son my 17 year old he turned to me and he goes you know what's going on right now why is it why is it so dead like what's happening and it just felt almost lazy to me like 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 you said it was very robotic they were just going through the motions there was very little um, kind of energy to the show. And not only that, but the problem happening right now with Survivor Series is, look, it's two things. They took the Survivor tag matches and they kind of turned them into, you know, lower card matches instead of, you know, making them seem very important. And then they, they decided we're going to do these title versus title matches where there's no titles on the line. So, so yeah. there's no stakes. And I understand why they do that, but there's no stakes. And it just felt very... Um, Kind of like, well, why are we here? You know, I don't need every show to be some kind of earth-shattering event, but it just felt like filler. I almost think they'd, they'd be better, better suited to going dropping back to either, not maybe not four, but every other month, six six pay-per-views a year. What do you what do you make of all the recent roster cuts? Well, you know, I'll have a boring answer. It's a predictable answer, but I'm really getting the same feeling that a lot of people are getting, which is that they're. They're uh, prepping for a sale. Um, I even wrote an article about it for Inside the Ropes where I kind of speculated, you know, what that would look like and and how, you know, what are the pros and cons of it. Uh, Pardon the the pun. (laughs) But it just seems like uh, there's no other explanation of – I mean, look, there's a lot of corporations that will make budget cuts during extremely profitable times because they're obscenely greedy, and that's fine. 
but it's not something that WWE generally did. This is kind of uncharted waters, and it feels like a new corporate philosophy, something new, and that, to me, is a logical explanation of why. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you bring up guys, I mean, Keith Lee, they redo this whole Bearcat persona, and then it looks like he's going to be set for a push, and boom, he's cut. Uh, they did the same thing with the, with the guys on SmackDown. They bring up a whole uh, faction, and within a matter of three weeks, they're all gone. So it's like the yeah, creative seems like it's all over the place. That's not right. That's not something that would have been done back in the day, because as we all know, if someone's on the way out, they're going to kind of try to bury them, or they're going to sort of take them out of the mix. They're definitely not going to re-sign them. They're not <laughs> going to repackage them. There's a, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Uh, and that's also very telling. Yeah. Now you were there from I, 01 to 07? Uh, 2000 to 07. 2007. And w- yeah. what were your, what were your job titles while you were there? What were my, my job titles? Well, um, I started as a, uh, copy editor. Uh, I, I worked in the publications department and, you know, copy editors kind of, um, Fancy name for a proofreader. So I started there, and then they made me a staff writer when they realized that I actually knew the product and I actually would, could write. And then I kind of worked my way up to different kind of editorial titles there. I was I was um, um, managing editor. I was senior editor. So I was kind of you know all over the place. But it was mainly the magazines. That was my official. That was what was on my business card. But I also did. Things for dot com. I did things for creative services, and you know, all other a lot of departments would pick my brain because they knew that I had a combination of the writing ability and also the knowledge of the product. And it was hard for them to find both in people. They usually found one or the other, and so they kind of like latched onto me for a while there. And every department was kind of, you know, tapping my shoulder when they needed things. It's kind of nice to be a, a, mess, a jack of all trades at that point. And you're there yeah. during you're there during ruthless aggression. So the rise of Cena, the rise of Orton, Batista, mm-hmm. Brock. Um, how how would you classify your time with the company? Uh, well, I like to say I was there for seven years. The first five years were great. <laughs> um, the first five years were like a dream come true, and the second, the last two years were like a nightmare. But I don't think it's. Um, a unique experience. You know, if you talk to anybody that worked there, whether they were in the ring or not, there's always this pattern of, you know, this is a dream of what I wanted to do. And then they kind of like, you know, they beat it out of you after a while. But, um, you know, it's, it's weird because there's so many stories of people kind of like going, going out in a blaze of glory from that place. (laughs) And I feel like, you know, when when I left there, people were like, people that I knew were like, wow, you're like in a category now with like Hulk Hogan and Bruno San Martino and Bret Hart. That's, that's like pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. But, but you know, it was like, it was, um, it was very hard work. That's the thing. And, and I think sometimes what happens is with people, especially on the office side of things, they... They like to have – they have this weird thing where they don't want people that are just too passionate about the product, so you got to sometimes hide it. And then on top of it, what they'll do is they'll kind of if – they, if they see that you are a big fan, a lot of times they'll kind of like 
take advantage of that to try to get a lot of work out of you and get you to go lengths and do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do maybe if you were working for like a vacuum cleaner company. You know what I mean? Yeah. So once you start to figure out what's happening there, you start to you can get a little bitter about it. That's in your dealings with directly with Vince at all. Um, they say the man like does not sleep. Yeah, that's what I that's what I always heard. The story was like three hours a night would be, <laughs> and I remember hearing that from like you know, like top people in the company like not just people speculating like people on the board directors and everything else would like talk about it or laugh about it and not only that but like very little connection to culture popular culture outside of his business you know he really is all about his business like he he's not the kind of guy that you can make a lot of small talk with he didn't see a lot of movies he didn't know a lot of TV. Like, there's always um, these stories you'll hear about creative writers, you know, pitching ideas to him that are based on movies or things or spoofs of characters, and he has no idea what they're talking about because he's never seen it. And it'll be something that, every, you know, everybody knows, kind of. I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example. I'm drawing a blank. But people who follow that have probably, probably remember hearing stories like that yeah. where he just didn't, you know. He just didn't follow stuff like that. I remember I interviewed him once, and I was lucky enough to get a couple of hours with him. And we were talking about his family history, and it took him like 20 seconds, I want to say, to remember what his grandmother's name was, which is kind of weird if you think about it. Yeah. yeah. Like he couldn't remember what his father's mother's name was. He had to sit there, and it just felt really awkward. Like I felt like I had to fill the silence with <laughs> With things because I'm thinking, wow, how odd to not remember your grandmother's name. It's it's a very eccentric kind of thing to me, you know. Yeah, one story that sticks out you were saying before was when they when they um brought the Razor Ramon gimmick to him for Scott Hall. He had never seen Scarface or heard of it. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. I think that was one of the ones that I was kind of subconsciously thinking of. There are others, but that's that's one of them. I have to say, in that case. Vince, you know, he, he, he probably spared himself in that particular instance, <laughs> but that's my own personal taste. But, yeah, I mean, like, that that would happen a lot. And, like, we when we did a personality profile of him one time, it wasn't me that did this. Another writer kind of had, like, a 20 questions thing with him, and they asked him what his favorite movie was. And he came, and I'll never forget this. The answer he gave them, which is so weird, is was Bad Santa. So if anybody wants to know, um, wow. Vince McMahon's favorite movie, apparently, or at least I guess at that time, is Bad Santa. That's crazy. That yeah. is so wild. It's the I guess, the but it kind of matches is. his personality. You would think, you know, <laughs> he's got a dark, dark personality. I imagine. Yes, I think so. And um, you know, he has. He seems to, just from my own limited experience, he seems to. Um, kind of be a, a cynical guy, you know, you know what I mean? As you would imagine somebody that's, you know, been done what he's done and been where he's been. He's kind of, he doesn't have the greatest faith in human nature. I don't think. And, and it's like when, uh, when he, when he was doing the attitude era, it almost felt like it was his chance to really cut loose and put something out there that I think was always his view of the world. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. and, and he had to kind of be 
little phony about it in the earlier years and do like the family friendly thing and and the the superheroes and the goody two shoes kind of product because he knew that that's what wrestling was and that's what would sell. But the Attitude Era style, even though he you know it was Vince Russo that kind of steered him that way, that was closer to his actual view of life and the world, I think. And the Mr. McMahon character became one of the yeah. greatest heels in the history of the business. So, yes. So let's let's talk about some uh, a new pro or a project you have ongoing. And we met you at the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame uh, inaugural weekend back in August. You're writing a book. Yeah, yeah. It's it's written actually. I am at the moment, not at this exact moment as I'm talking to you, but. Right now, I am uh, going through the final proofs of this book. It's the first ever biography of the original Sheik and Farhat, and it's called Blood and Fire, the, the real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Now, it comes out in April, but um, it's pretty much – you can pre-order it now already, and I think there's a, they're, they're going to have copies printed probably by January or February, I would guess. So I'm getting my last look right now at the sort of like the PDF manuscript of what the book's going to look like um, just to, for any last-minute changes and stuff. But it's been an incredible journey. This month made two years since I started working on it. Wow. Now, now what's what steered you towards The Sheik as a topic for a biography? Well, you know, um, I wrote a, a wrestling book before this called Pro Wrestling FAQ, and it was like so just sort of like an all-purpose reference book about wrestling history, and I had a bunch of profiles of stars in there, and when I was doing the Sheik one, it really piqued my interest, just his life and how he played his character to the hilt more than anybody else, even in that era when they protected kayfabe so much more, he really lived it, and it wasn't really who he was, of course, and people didn't know that he was the boss. You know, he was running the, the company in terms of big-time wrestling in Detroit. And it was just this fascinating figure to me that people knew almost nothing about. Never gave an interview ever in his entire life, a public interview. And I had already had some interest in Detroit wrestling from when I was younger because when I started getting into wrestling history and tracking down territory stuff, I realized that the Detroit territory at one time had been one of the hottest in the country, and it just kind of fizzled out and died, and it died before Vince McMahon's expansion. So it's a territory that's not talked about as much anymore as I think it should be, and I, ju I just found it such an interesting relic of a bygone time. And on top of that, I realized that the Sheik, this was my estimation at the time, was the single biggest wrestling star I could think of, legend, that had never had a biography done, especially from his, from his time period. Like there are other people who haven't, but I couldn't think of anyone who was bigger. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to, I got to fix that. And that's what I went to do. Now it's a pretty big undertaking considering that, like you had said, the Detroit um, territory fizzled out. And now you're trying to track down people to talk to, to get information, interviews and whatnot. How hard was it getting the ball rolling? It was challenging, definitely. You know, the first thing that I faced was the sad reality that most of the best people you'd want to talk to are gone. 
they're no longer with us. You know, I, I don't believe the Sheik would have participated if he was alive, but he's not, so I couldn't. You know, Bobo Brazil is gone, um, while Bill Curry is gone, and, you know, Mighty Igor, all the best, all the people behind the scenes you might want to talk to, long gone. You know, uh, a lot of the family that was around at the time, all of his brothers and sisters, which he had 10 of them. I mean, uh, you know, so that was tough. So I had to kind of confine it to three areas. I got people who, you know, the few, few remaining people that were really there at the heyday that I could get a hold of. And chief among them, I would say, was Flying Fred Curry, who was Bull Curry's son, who lives near me in Connecticut. I was able to get him, and that was, you know, he had tremendous insight. Um, because he knew the Sheik very, very well. Also, Lou Sahadi, who was the publisher of Wrestling World, they were, you know, they were they were all part of what they what they called the Lebanese Mafia, you know, in wrestling. Like you have the Samoan Mafia now, you know, because all these guys were Lebanese and they all bonded. So I got like kind of people like that. Some of the people were people that were around, you know, but they were just starting their career at the time. So they were like enhancement talent, or they were people on the way up that knew him. Like I talked to Al Snow for that reason, and of course Rob Van Dam, who um, wrote the forward to the book. He was kind enough to do it. Sheik was his mentor and his trainer. So I got people like that, and, and I even managed to talk to a few kind of super fans from that era, like people that for whom going to Kobo Arena every every other week was like, almost like a religious experience, you know, so I got their experiences too. You know, people from more of this generation think, you say Kobo Arena, Kobo Hall, think of the the horrible monster truck thing with Hogan and the Giant, but don't realize how big of a spot that was in its heyday for pro wrestling. That was like going to the Sportatorium or going to the Omni or going to the Garden. Yeah, I even mentioned, I had to mention it, I think it's in like a footnote in the book about, about the giant going off the roof in the monster truck. Um, just, but yeah, I mean, Kobo, and that was, I think, 95, right, with WCW or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- Kobo Arena was, like you said, it was for a time in a class with Madison Square Garden, Olympic Auditorium, Keel Center, Greensboro Coliseum, Maple Leaf Gardens. It was, it was sort of, you know, the, the Fort Homer Hester Lee Armory. It was in that class of legendary fabled locations in the territorial days of wrestling. And I'll tell you what, even just from doing my research, um, there was a period, you know, their hottest period, which is like late 60s, early 70s, didn't last long, but their hottest period. I would put the shows that they were running against anything anywhere else in the country in terms of the star power, the matches. They would have 12, 13, 14 matches. They'd be pulling in stars from all over the place. You'd have the Sheik versus Bruno San Martino. You'd have the Funks coming in. You'd later have Andre the Giant. You'd have Whipper Billy Watson. People just from all over, Abdullah the Butcher just kind of starting out. People from It, it was like cherry-picking the best, and he would bring them in. And they were selling out the place. Again, it wasn't as big as the Garden. It was about a twelve or 13,000 capacity arena. But they were packing it. They were doing better numbers. Talking, this is every other week. They're doing better numbers than the Pistons were doing at the time. They're drawing more consistently than any touring you know, musical act that would come into Kobo. They were really like, you know, Dave Brzezinski, who was the Sheik's last manager, 
he calls Kobo Arena the house that the Sheik built. And it's hard to argue with, you know, there should be a statue of him outside of it. It's it's amazing to think of, I've always viewed personally wrestling very cyclical. You have the high periods, the down periods, but to have um, an area that, that was so hot for a period of time, not only fizzle out, but it's gone. I mean, you don't, you don't hear of Detroit being a big wrestling town anymore. You still hear about, oh, Chicago draws well. L.A. draws well, New York draws well, but Detroit never comes up in that talk anymore. What do you think led to that? That was really factors outside of even the control of the business and outside of wrestling because, as a lot of people know, and I mean, if you live in Detroit, I know it's harsh reality, but you probably know it better than anybody else. That city has suffered. That city has really, starting from the late 60s, really, that city went into a collapse. And um, it just, I don't think it ever fully recovered. An economic collapse, kind of, um, you know, crime and drugs and things sort of taking over, the, the, the government being unable to really fight it, the auto industry, which was the backbone of it, just drying up and moving elsewhere. And so that was like a ripple effect. And I think that contributed. It wasn't the only contributor. There were wrestling-related factors, but that contributed in a big way to the collapse of not just big-time wrestling, but Detroit as a wrestling city, and Detroit even as just a vibrant major American city. I mean, mean, the city went bankrupt. It it really got hit really, really hard. It's sort of like what you read about and hear about what happened with Mid-South with Bill Watts, how there were economic factors, and there was the oil crisis and things, and people just weren't spending money on wrestling, and... That's kind of what happened uh, with big-time wrestling in Detroit, too, in part. There were other things, I mean, with the product itself, but but it was the kind of thing where the city was in free fall, and wrestling for a while was one of the only things that was still healthy and successful and drawing people in that city, but even that eventually didn't last, and it caught up to it, and, and wrestling died out in, in the city of Detroit. Wow. So... You know, you you undertook a, a very hard subject, right? In a in in like you just went through, Detroit was on its way down, and the Sheik's family was you know all deceased, and barely anybody knew him. So how how did you research? And I'm sure it was like painstaking, uh, painstakingly long research to dig up the things that you needed for this book. Yeah, I had to get really creative because, <clears throat> like I said. I couldn't get the context that I really wanted. I, I couldn't, uh, you know, the family was not involved, even the surviving members of the family, you know, very secretive. I understand that. I respected their their wishes. And so, you know, I had to, as I think any good biographer should, but I had to, like, go to National Archives kind of stuff. And I had to go, you know, Ancestry.com. And, of course, you know, the wrestling stuff is easier to find out than the real-life stuff. And I wanted this to be a story of a real person. You know, the wrestling stuff, you can look that up if you really wanted to. I wanted to make this a complete story of a person's life. So, like, I ordered his military records from from the government, you know, to figure out what he he did in the war because he served in World War II. Wow. He did that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, he he was over in in Europe. I mean, he was fighting the Nazis, literally. He was in a tank, driving a tank um, through, you know, Europe. 
And so that's the kind of stuff that I try to really dig up. I found, you know, in the local newspaper in Lansing, stuff about his family growing up because his family was kind of was very well known in the community. They were this large, um, you know, Syrian family with 11 kids and, you know, just holding court and being a, a part of the community and buying war bonds. And his mother, you know, was this incredible matriarch figure to the whole neighborhood. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming across that stuff and I'm going, this is the book that I want to write. This is th- these are the things that nobody knows about, you know, and I was lucky. I, saw, I really think a lot of the time how lucky I am to be doing this in this day and age because so much of it you could do from home. You know what I mean? Especially even during the pandemic and lockdown where I, my my mobility was limited. Even if I wanted to get out there, you know, I wasn't going to be getting on a plane or anything. And I was able to find court records and all kinds of things. Um, Just being diligent enough and knowing where to look and just piecing the story together. Did you dive into his football playing days at all? Well, I'd like to talk about that because it's an interesting myth. So that always comes up, and it was even mentioned in when Meltzer did his obituary in 2003. And when I talked to Dave, he pointed out how he had made the mistake, and he had to correct it. So here's the thing about the Sheik. So the Sheik's name was Edward Farhat. Now, he had a brother uh, that was two years older than him, and his name was Edmund Farhat. Uh-huh. Why in the world? <laughs> why in the world you would do that? I have no idea. But they did that. So they had two Ed Farhats. So this guy, Edmund Farhat, was this incredible overachiever. He played football in college. He went, you know, he went to university. Played basketball, softball. He was this incredible athlete. He went on to, you know, become like a a, a coach, a you know, in school sports and like a you know, a, a lobbyist. He had this, uh, you know, teach classes and things. What would happen a lot of times, I found, was that journalists and writers and things back then, when they were trying to research the Sheik and they thought they were being all slick and smart and they figured out what his real name was, they were looking up the wrong Ed Farhat and they were putting that information <laughs> in. And the thing that amuses me is I believe that the Sheik allowed them to do it and never bothered to correct it because I believe that he think he thought that it added to his mystique to have people <laughs> whispering, hey, you know, the, did you know that the Sheik played football in college? Did you know that the Sheik was like a, you know, it's like a university professor? All these crazy stories would come up. Did you know, you know, that the Sheik, um, you know, what was, was this incredible, you know, guy? And not saying that he wasn't, but his story was very different. And when I discovered it, I had to be so careful and double and triple check that I wasn't making a mistake because I thought, well, how could this be? And that's when I discovered what had happened because Ed Edward Farhat, the Sheik, never even went to high school. Forget about finishing high school or going to college. <laughs> uh, he never he never even started high school. He he left school, my 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 best estimation. From the records I could find, like, for example, on his military record, it says last grade completed eighth grade. And the thing is, and at that time he was like 19, you know. So what? my best guess is, you know, obviously in those era, in that era, anybody who knows, you know, if you ever talk to your grandparents or people from that generation, it was a lot more common for that kind of thing to happen where 
people would just drop out of school and get a job. And you didn't have the emphasis on college as much as you have today, especially with the Depression and the war and everything. But even for those days, his story is a little unique um, in terms of the, even the legality of stopping school from that young of an age. Um, my guess, and what, from what I've seen from other people's stories, like my grandfather was kicked out of school in the seventh grade for fighting with a teacher. And they basically uh, sat down with his mom and said, get this kid out of here. I mean, you, you could, this was public school. They said you could either, either put him in boarding school, right, or, uh, or have him get a job. So they, so they told him, um, get this kid out of our school. And, and that's not something you could get away with doing today. But even back then when it happened, there was usually two explanations. Either, either it was extremely poor academic performance or more likely some type of disciplinary thing. And I couldn't find any indication of what the reason was, you know, but it, but it was probably one of those two things. So he had a very different, he was much more streetwise. He was much more rough around the edges than some of his older brothers who got to really get these like white collar jobs and things. You know, he was a very different kind of a guy. He was more of a street guy. Now, where in the in the lineage did he fall of the siblings? Was he the middle? Was he the oldest, the youngest? He was the 10th of 11, and he was the youngest son. So there was only one child born after him, and it was Genevieve, who was Sabu's mother. Oh. And she. so other than that, he was the baby, He was, and especially of the boys. And I think what happens, look, uh, again, if, if you know people that are in these really, really large families, especially from back then, when people would crank out all these kids, um, especially people who were Catholic, right? You, you would tend to see, as his family was, by the way, they were not Muslim, they were Catholic, but you would tend to see that, unfortunately, people are only human. I mean, when you're having kids over a 20-year span, you get tired. And some of the later kids get the short shrift. They don't get as much attention. They don't, they don't have the same experience. And I think that's kind of what, happened with him where um he had to fend for himself a little bit more you know he he had to sort of be a little more streetwise and savvy and tough and and he did i I think that 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 shaped him it's it's amazing to to see that the it's i don't want to say it's not it's not a bait it's um the hook to get somebody to come in and read the book a lot of times is going to be wow I'm a, I'm a pro wrestling fan and I want to read about the sheik, but once you get in and get past that and dive in to see that there is a really in depth person behind this character, I mean you've really done your homework and this is going to be an amazing read. Thank you and and don't get me wrong you know I don't want people to think I mean obviously the the reason I'm doing the book is because the sheik was this legendary wrestler and most of the book deals with the wrestling, but I wanted to give a picture of the real person that went through all this. And even when it comes to the wrestling stuff, you know, I'm not writing the book in, in kayfabe. It's very much like what was really going on, what was happening behind the scenes, what was happening in his life. Um, like Rob Van Dam said in the forward that he wrote. And when I talked to him too, he, he thanked me because he said, you know, I knew the sheep when I was a kid and he was old and this was like in the early nineties and stuff. And I didn't even know what was going on in his life until I read this book because he was so guarded. Like I didn't know what was going through. Like his wife, Joyce filed for divorce. Sheik's wife 
from him. They eventually reconciled. But this was happening while Rob was staying at their house, while Rob was a trainee of theirs, and he didn't even know. He didn't even know it was happening. That's how private they were. Wow. So I so that's what I mean when I say I wanted to be I wanted it to be a complete story. And and when I tell it from the wrestling point of view, I think what people will find is it's not just Sheik's story in wrestling. It's whatever it touched in the rest of the wrestling business all through those years. So what was going on in the business at the time and how was the Sheik a part of that? Like when I for example, when it's the nineteen fifties, I'm talking about the TV golden age of wrestling and the Marigold arena and wrestling from Chicago and Fred Kohler and what a phenomenon it was and how people like gorgeous George were as big of a star as Lucille ball and Milton Berle and, and howdy doody. I mean, the people that were watching TV in those days. And that is when the sheet got his first taste of national attention. Cause he got put on that show for a nationwide audience. And that's when people first got to know him. So it's like, a, so I'm talking about Sheik's story, but in the context of everything else that was going on in the business. Did you ever dig into how or why he became the Sheik? Yeah, I, I did because um, another thing people didn't know, I think, a lot of times is that he actually did wrestle under his real name before adopting the gimmick. Because my initial assumption when I started was he just immediately debuted as the Sheik. He was always the Sheik or the Sheik of Araby as his original wrestling name was. And what I discovered was that was not true. So he adopted the persona in 1949, but he had been wrestling already for a year or two before that out of the army. And he was just Ed Farhat, local kid from Lansing. You know, wrestling at the bingo halls and the VFW halls and things like like so many wrestlers do in front of 300 people, you know, just as himself, as this clean cut, good looking kid who just got out of the army, you know, a local boy made good kind of thing, squeaky clean baby face. And then it's he sort of comes under the wing of a few people, um, one of them being Burt Ruby, who was uh, another kind of legendary figure in wrestling from the time, especially the, the Detroit area. And he worked for the promoter of Detroit, who was um, Harry Light at the time. And they also had a trainer by the name of Lou Klein, who was the original man of a thousand holds, by the way. And um, they kind of put their heads together and came up with this idea. There's a lot of things that went into it. You know, there were, believe it or not, the irony of it is, even though he's always known as the original Sheik, he actually was not the first wrestler to use a chic gimmick. There had been a handful before him, and I think he kind of took some ideas and notes from them. You know, there was there was a guy named Sheik Mar Allah who was um, uh, part um, Middle Eastern and part Mexican, and he wrestled all through Mexico and California with this kind of debonair, suave, like Rudolph Valentino kind of chic gimmick. And in the 30s, and there was another guy named Sheik Ymir Badwi, who, if you believe it, or I don't know if, I, if it's 100% true, but he was claimed to have been the uncle of uh, Skandor Akbar and the great Mephisto Frankie Kane, who were two people that, that kind of stole the Sheik's gimmick. But um, he crossed paths with a very young Ed Farhat in the 1940s, and I believe that it definitely had an influence on him in kind of formulating 
um, what this persona was going to be that he was going to take on. So it was it was kind of crafted to get him some attention, and it worked because by the early fifties he was already, he was on national television. And I, I think what generations now more so than back then, but today's generations don't realize you know, we have streaming everything, and there's hundreds and hundreds of channels. Nationwide TV had only a handful of channels to to look at, so it's magnified that much more of how much celebrity you got from that. Yeah, you know, TV was a limited medium back then. Depending on where you lived, you'd have three, four, five channels maybe. And um, that's what you watched. There was no DVR. There was no home video. There was no streaming. There was no way to record anything. When it was on, you turned the TV on, you watched it. And, and so very few people had that platform. So you were very lucky to get it. There was some localized wrestling TV programming in that era, even late forties, early fifties, but the show that everybody watched. And when you hear about that golden era and, and the wrestling of those days and everything like we know now, like the famous, you know, Looney Tunes cartoon with Bugs Bunny and, and the crusher um, that came out of that era when wrestling was on everybody's TV, the ratings were through the roof and it was the Chicago show. You had two shows out of Chicago. You had the Chicago national amphitheater, which a lot of those videos you'll see they pop up on YouTube because I think it's preserved in the National Archive or something. And then you had Fred Kohler's Wrestling from Marigold Arena, which was probably the, the more popular one, and that's where so many people kind of got their start. They got their first platform. You know, you had Mr. America, Gene Stanley. You had Vern Gagne becoming a massive star before he you know, got the money to create the AWA. You had Gorgeous George, like we said, Johnny Valentine kind of coming up in that there are so many, so many people that just became huge stars on the impetus of that TV platform. And the interesting thing was the Sheik was not a main eventer. The Sheik of Araby was not a main eventer in that era. He was a mid-card wrestler, but he still got noticed and people remembered him. That was the thing. A lot of those guys like the Crusher, Dick the Bruiser, they came up in that time period. They were on your TV. And people never forgot, even 20 years later, when those guys were still eking out a living in the territories, people remembered who they were because of that. Yeah, most definitely. My grandfather had passed a year or two ago now, but those were the names that he talked about being a wrestling fan back in the you know 40s and 50s and into the 60s and all the way till all the way till he passed. But those were the names that stuck out in his mind because he got to see them on that national platform. Yeah, yeah, Buddy Rogers was another one actually popped into my head because I just read Tim Horn Baker's book. He was another massively popular wrestler from that uh, time period on national TV. Now, during your time writing this book, was there any legal, you know, uh, hoops you had to jump through or anything like that? No. No, I mean, you know, it's a biography, so it's – I think the interesting thing in wrestling is people are so used to autobiographies of wrestlers because so many of them do it, whether they have a ghostwriter or not, that you can sometimes lose sight of the fact that anybody can write a biography, you know, of anyone they want. Right. It doesn't require participation of the subject, which is evident to most people. But, <laughs> but in the world of wrestling, sometimes fans or people will be like well, – did you get permission to do this? Do you have, you know, 
uh, signed this or that or the other thing. And look, I mean, if I'm writing a biography of Richard Nixon, I don't have to get his family's permission to write the biography. I just write the biography, you know? I mean, there's good and there's bad to participation of a family in a case like that because the good is that, you know, it's endorsed and you don't have to worry about sour grapes and you can get greater access to so many things. But the bad part is then it becomes a tilted story. It becomes their story. It becomes what they want to get out there. You know, like I just saw this really excellent documentary on Dean Martin that was on Turner Classic Movies. And one of the producers was his daughter, Dina. And so, you know, it's beautiful. It's it's a wonderful tribute, but they do gloss over certain things and they dance around certain things. And I'm watching it, getting that feeling and going, yep, this is probably what would have happened if I had Sheik's family involved. There would be places that I couldn't go. So, uh, you know, I mean, no no legal issues. <laughs> we'll see after it comes out. But, I mean, it's it's a loving tribute. It's honest when it needs to be. But it's a tribute that's meant to preserve this man's legacy, not to bury him or libel him. Right. Now, what – we all have that moment, right? We didn't – we, we, we spoke to you briefly at the wrestling induction ceremony there, the Hall of Fame. What what was every wrestling fan has a particular match that brings them to wrestling like that's it this moment happened you're a wrestling fan do you remember the match you know it wasn't a match for me it was a it was a moment and um, it was it was a uh, Piper's Pit and I'm gonna be again it's it's probably an answer you get from a lot of people but I had been kind of now and then turning on wrestling all through the 80s because it was so big and my friends in school would watch it and every now and then I'd pop it on but it never grabbed me and made me want to watch every week until they did the angle on Piper's Pit where Andre the Giant turns against Hulk Hogan. I'm 12 years old and I'm watching this and not even fully understanding what I'm watching. Like, is this real? Is this a scripted show? What is happening right now? You know, I'm in the seventh grade. And it was this intense drama for people that remember it. It's like, man, you felt it. And I guess, you know, you look back now in the era of like 20-minute endless scripted promos where everything is so polished. And, you know, some people may think it's corny or whatever, but it felt real exactly for the reason that it wasn't those things. And, you know, he grabs the Hogan's shirt and the crucifix, and Hogan go, Hogan's begging him not to do this. He almost seems like he's going to cry. And Andre kind of throws him to the ground. And and Piper gets down there, and I'll never forget, and I talk to people about this, and they always say the same thing. Piper grabs, you know, helps him up and looks at him, and Piper goes, you're, you're bleeding. You're bleeding. You're bleeding, man. Yep. And, <laughs> and Hogan starts to shake. The crucifix got ripped off, and he and he gets mad for the first time, you know? And I watch it still now, and I get chills. I, I, I really do. I mean, look, I, I don't apologize for it at all. I, I get chills, and I think back, and I'm like, I was sold. I oh. was sold. You couldn't tell me anything after that. I've got the emotion right now running yeah, through Yeah, I'm, I'm watching the Highland start the Hulk up over because... here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm and telling the, the ironic thing, the ironic thing was, in, in you know, I started watching wrestling then regularly, and really, I was not a huge Hogan fan. 
I was one of those kids that was rooting against him. I would be rooting for whoever he was wrestling because I wanted to see something change. You know, he, he was champion for so long and he always won and he always won the same way. And I didn't have this, you know, now I think I have much more respect for him as a performer than I did back then. But, but he, I, I was just looking for a shakeup. Like I wanted one of the other people to have a shot at the belt. I just thought, wow, wouldn't it be great? Because in my mind, he'd been champion, you know, in my 12 year old mind, you know, since the beginning of time, you know, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I wasn't really, I wasn't really watching that much before that, you know, and sometimes some of my older friends would say, no, 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 there used to be this guy named Bob Backlund, you know, and he was really boring and he was like, you know, he was like a college wrestler and, you know, it's very, it was very different. It was in those days, very different. But so I would be rooting against him. But in no, in that moment though, with the Piper's pit, it didn't even matter. It, it wasn't so much that I was on Hogan's side. It was just the emotion of what was happening and not really knowing what it, it was all about that that drew me in it, it, that really drew me in yeah uh, when you said oh, he's bleeding that that to, that sticks out to me and andre in his his broken english look at me when i'm talking to you yes and, and that heenan, was like the you things can't forget, you can't forget heenan standing there just glaring yeah. and gloating and beaming it's just it's, and that's people, that that is missing from today's product right they're raw and it's too polished now you know what I mean? Yes. A little bit like where it was raw emotion kind of yeah. and unscripted. I mean, I'm sure that was scripted to a point, but it to was point. badly yeah. scripted if it was. Hogan could right. sell the way he, that the emotion he would sell uh, was amazing at that point. And I guess steering, you know, looking at today's product, a lot of that is so gone. The only thing that sticks out recently that's, that's been, even been on TV for either of the major U S companies recently was the Eddie Kingston CM Punk exchange? Yes, that was, was up there. Was outstanding, um, but there's overall, a, it, it's it's lacking right now. There's a couple of problems. One is the overscripting of everything. Yeah, I'm not look. I'm not breaking new ground in saying that. But part of the reason why they felt they needed needed to do that is because in those days it was not a TV ratings business. I mean, yes, of course you monitor the ratings of your shows, but people in the company weren't going, Hey, how did, how did wrestling challenge do this week? You know, the shows were infomercials. They were designed to sell you on either going to a live event or ordering a pay-per-view of which there weren't very many. So they didn't, it's not like now where every segment they're really trying to like overproduce it to make it as riveting as possible so that people won't change the channel. And they, it's like a control thing. They don't want to put people out there to just be themselves and just kind of go off bullet points and just talk because they're, they're terrified that people are going to change the channel. You know, you have so many people watching, it's a national show and millions of people around the world. And they're going, you know, we're not going to have somebody go out there that, that can't handle this and that doesn't know how to do it. And so because of that, it does come off very overly polished. You know, the thing with the segment, like we're talking about with Hogan and Andre, Hogan is not the greatest actor of all time by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it felt more improvised. Even if, even if real's not the right word, it just felt more improvised, like this weird dramatic thing that was happening. And you didn't really know what it was like this makeshift thing. And, and another issue I think with today, how they have to do it 
is everything has to move so much faster now. You could, back then, the, the movement of what happened from week to week on the show was a lot less because they didn't care about ratings because they were trying to get over these house show feuds. So they didn't want to change a lot of things because it's like, okay, we're putting these guys together on the house show circuit. So we got to give it time to go around the whole circuit for everybody in every city to see this match. So we basically shoot an angle, you know, Rick Flair, um, um, Rick Martel blinds, Jake, the snake Roberts, boom, whatever, whatever you, whatever you want to do, you know, uh, Jake, get uh, six, the snake on Randy Savage. I don't know why I keep just thinking of Jake, but they would shoot an angle and then let it go on the road. And there weren't really any more developments beyond that. Whereas now everything happens on TV. Everything happens on the weekly show. There is no more. We have to push people to the house shows, you know? And so now it's like every week there's got to be, or they're trying to have these significant, compelling developments in the story that's something that came from the attitude era that's something that came from the russo way of doing things and really kind of treating it like a soap opera but the problem of that is it burns out after a while you can't that's the reason they never did it that way before you can't keep doing that every single week because then you get to where we are now where they're so desperately trying to go well what do we do now what do we do okay what do we do this week okay now what do we do this week okay now what do we do this week and, and it's just beating a dead horse. It's like we can talk about a five-minute Piper's Pit segment from 34 years ago. We're still talking about it now. And, and now you watch wrestling, and there's these extended confrontations and promos and things every single week. And they just go by, and you forget about them three seconds later. And if you took any one of those and transported it back to 1987, again, people our age would be talking about it still now because it would stand out by itself. Yeah, one of those segments became a six-month or eighth-month or year-long program. That's it. They took their time with it because they had to. Because, like, you know, if it was for a pay-per-view, you still only had a handful of years, so you still had to let it simmer, let it build. And if it was for house shows, people were never going to see those guys touch on TV. They were, they were only going to see it if they went to go see it live. So you couldn't really developed the storyline to the point where it was resolved because it had to be resolved live. So you had to keep people hanging. So you didn't have, like I said, you know, new developments in these angles every single week. A lot of times it would be kind of status quo. You would have a bunch of matches, enhancement matches to get over the heels, to get over the baby faces. There'd be a few like packages and interviews to put over whatever the feuds were. And then we were off to the next week of wrestling, and it was just it was, it was on a, a much lower scale than it is now. But but that's what you had. You didn't know any better, and you watched it every week, and and you got into it. And now people are so very much desensitized because they have so much that's thrown at them. It's that hot shotting that's been done. It's like what they used to call kind of you know burning out the town, burning out the territory, but on a national and international level. Do you think that? Russo's style of writing for the long term damaged the business, or do you think it's it's what it needed at that time? And I don't know. I mean, he, he's such a polarizing figure. Yeah, I, I think that it was very good for business for that moment in time, but the long term effects of it are damaging. 
And there's a reason, like I said, the wisdom of those old school promoters and bookers where their mentality was always, we have to hold back. We have to hold back. Take it easy. Don't do too much. You know, we can't, we can't, we got to control the heat because if, if we burn through everything, then what do we do next? You know, we, we can't do this. We'll have this idea and we'll let it play out for six months because we got to string people along here. But then the idea became, well, we're just going to do it all in one show. You know, you'd watch a show where you're sitting there going, over the course of this two-hour Raw, I could imagine in the past it would take like three or four months to get through the developments that they did <laughs> right. in this one two-hour Raw. And so I think it was a little short-sighted. That's just, a, you know, my opinion. I know not everyone's going to agree with me. I'm sure Russo himself wouldn't agree with me, but it worked at the time. But now we're stuck with this situation where people just think that's what wrestling is, and you have to keep feeding them and giving to them. And um, it's, it's hot-shotting. That's what they did. They hot-shotted. It was a very long, a very, very good short-term explosion of business, as it would, you would imagine it would be. But then when you just keep doing it, it's not special anymore. And that's why it was never done. You know, these, these uh, heel and face turns constantly back and forth all the time. Boom, 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 boom. Every title changing constantly. The titles basically being treated as props more than anything else, like just as a way to get people over or get an angle over. And done in a very transparent way where it's very obvious, where all of a sudden we go from having like one or two intercontinental champions a year to having like seven or eight, you know, and, and it's just a kind of a standard practice. And um, like I said, it, it just it burns people out and it stretches the believability of things. Th those extended in-ring promos where the wrestlers directly address the crowd in the middle of a show. Yeah, there was a time when they were very novel. It was very special. It was like, oh, my God, this show, this wrestling show I'm watching, this professional sports show <laughs> is being interrupted by this wrestler just hijacking the show and grabbing a mic and, and venting his feelings out. Like, oh, my God, is anyone going to stop him? You know, it, how long has he been talking for? But now it's just part of the show. It's like treated like any other part of the show. They just come out, the music plays, there's no explanation of – why they're out there, who let them go out there, are the wrestlers waiting to have their matches, what's happening. It's just an accepted part of the show. And, um, again, not anywhere near as effective. Yeah, so while I was listening to you guys debate, you know, the burnout quick and this and that, and I, I got, it made me think. Ted DiBiase, right, he, he's, uh, he was hunting – that world title for years and he never really held it. Right. Cause he, it was given to him and then they made the tournament. Yeah. Then he made his own belt. Like that would be flushed out in like between two pay-per-views right now. <laughs> yes. Because you have monthly pay-per-views. One of right. the biggest things that I mourned when they started doing it in 95, even with the, in your houses was the monthly pay-per-views. And I, of course I know why you do it. You make more money. Fine. Great. But from a creative point of view, I knew what was going to happen, which was everything was going to start moving really fast. The house shows were going to become irrelevant, and they did, because you could resolve everything now right. on the pay-per-views. And, and then the Monday Night Wars happen, and then you know Raw become, and, and Nitro become destination TV where, where big things are happening. And it, it, changed, uh, it really changed the business.
I, I'm I'm willing to bet that pay-per-views aren't even really a thing right now. Because honestly, everybody gets the app, probably is on the app, 90% of their viewers. When you imagine. Right, yeah, and I, I use the word pay-per-view. It's such an archaic term no, right now. No. I mean, although, I mean, AEW does, a lot of companies do pay-per-view. But when you're talking about WWE and you call the Survivor right. Series a pay-per-view, well, it's really not. Even though in the legal warning in the beginning, it still says pay-per-view. It does. They, it haven't, does. they haven't changed that yet. But, you know, um, it just feels less and less special. And I think Survivor Series was just a perfect example of that, of just it didn't – nothing popped. It was this dead, flat show. From where I was sitting anyway in the, in the arena, it was this flat show. Everybody's working hard. Everybody's doing their thing, very by the numbers, very robotic, blah, 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 and the show's over. You know, it just didn't have, and I was at a, I was at a Dynamite Grand Slam from Arthur Ashe Stadium in September. And that was magic. I mean, electricity. I've been watching wrestling as long as I've been talking. You know, as I told you guys, I was, and it's and it's like moments like that I can count on on my hands that that were more like electric, especially live, and one of the most incredible things I've ever been present for, and that just wasn't happening at this show. At this WWE show, it's just it's just flat. Do do you think wrestling is ready for or in need of a reset? Like you you there's Mean Gene Okerlund was a character back in the day, and and those promos that they would cut right before they went out for WrestleMania matches, they were some of the most magic moments. And it was only like a a quick snidbit, you know, where Hogan was yeah. doing the backstroke, all the Hulk maniacs on my back, yep. you know, stuff like that, but. You don't have that now. Now you got this big movie montage before they come out. It's almost like wrestling needs a reset. Get- it was very tiresome. That that what was the movie? The Rock movie. We're sitting there. We're going like, are they going to just show us the whole movie? Or when, right. when do we get to the to the show? It was endless, endless. Just made no sense at all. So yeah. what's on? And t- you talk about Mean oh. Gene. Mean Gene is like. I mean, those are the characters we don't have anymore. I mean. They intentionally want these backstage interviewers to just be microphone stands, you know, with yeah. eyeballs. That's it. There's no – Mean Gene was a part of any segment he was in, and he never – I mean, I think some people might disagree on this, but he never overshadowed the talent. He always played off of them. He added something to the segments. It was funny. It was interesting. It was cool. And now it's just I'm going to stand here. I'm this kind of – you know, generic person, I'm going to ask one question and then I'm just going to hold a microphone in your face while you talk for five minutes and just stare blankly at you with no reaction whatsoever to anything you say. Then you're going to walk away and I'm going to stare off into space for no reason without like saying anything or throwing it back to the hosts or anything. Yeah. Again, it's the most dead bland thing. It's so lacking any of the color that it used to have, you know, wrestling is, colorful you know it's it it should have that to it and it's like in cases like that it's like they're intentionally trying to drain it out i still laugh at the segment with me and gene and uh sid where sid asks if he can redo his promo and he's like no we're live big fella (laughs) right right we're live pal yeah we don't get that anymore but what's on tap for brian solomon in the future here you're you're finishing up this project it's in its final stages uh what's next for you well, I'm, I'm finishing, like you said, Blood and Fire. Um, I'm really wrapping it up. I'm working on another book right now, which is not wrestling-related, but maybe conceptually. It, it's going to be about the history of superheroes. 
and that'll be out probably by the end of next year. But uh, but as far as wrestling related stuff, I keep you know I continually regularly contribute to Inside the Ropes magazine and to Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which I've been proud to be a part of now for years. And I'm actually kind of psyched because I've mentioned a little bit of this online, but I am starting my own podcast very soon. So maybe I'll nice. give you awesome. guys a run for the money. I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be called Shut Up and Wrestle. And um, it's going to be carried on the Arcadian Vanguard uh, network, Brian, with the Brian Last and Jim Cornette yep. kind of network there. And um, I've been busy kind of banking interviews for the show. And well, where's our call? <laughs> well you can you can wait your turn you know I'll, I'll get around to you once i start having other podcasters on that's when you know you've entered like the cannibalism phase of your podcast that's right so you know we'll, we'll see when it gets to that point but um yeah it, it's something really new for me i was recently on the 605 super podcast as a guest co-host with brian last there was a big positive reaction to it which i wasn't expecting and I had been toying with the idea of doing a podcast for years, a wrestling one, and it really gave me a little nudge of like, wow, maybe people might actually want to hear me. Maybe. I don't know. So uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Awesome. Awesome. Brian's great. He he needles and pokes Jim Cornette so well throughout their shows to get, to get Corny going, and they go for two and three hours. Um, I know. That, that's, that's an outstanding uh, format they have going there. I love I love Jim's another controversial guy, but I I can't not not listen to him because of the the stuff that does come out of his mouth at times. Yeah, you can't. And I think the funny thing is, for a lot of younger fans and, and people in general, they may not even really understand who who he is, who he was. That that he, you know, we think of Jim Cornette, we think of the Midnight Express, you know, or or maybe you think of Yokozuna or something like just this legendary wrestling manager. And it's so funny for for a younger generation of fans. He's the guy on the podcast, like like you know, making wisecracks about yeah. AEW and 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 like you know, saying these controversial things. That's who he is to them. And you know, whatever. Kudos to him. Uh, he reinvented himself. And for people, it's hilarious who will knock him and criticize him for being you know irrelevant. The funny thing is, like he's now made made himself continue to be relevant. Absolutely. But by, yeah. by reinventing himself as this critic. For for hating Meltzer, Kenny Olivier, and the Young Bucks. <laughs> I'm sad. I'm sad. I have to say I'm sad about the Meltzer, the feud with him and yeah. Dave. Because like a lot of old school wrestling fans, I have that classic wrestling gold DVD box set where uh, Dave Meltzer and Jim Cornette do all the special DVD commentaries for all the matches. And, and you know, they always were great friends and they go back in the business decades and they were both like young fans in the 70s and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's like mommy and daddy getting a divorce. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't it's like it. Two different... I, I wish that they could bury the hatchet. You know? I, I do, too. It's two different points of view. But I think if the wrestling business has taught us as fans anything, never say never. Agreed. So it's been an absolute blast having you on today. Um, before we let you go, we want you to uh, promote your social media. Sure thing. All right. So um, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. Uh, that's all O's. If people want to find me on Facebook, I have a page. Uh, if, if you search Pro Wrestling F FAQ, I post a lot of my wrestling content there. That's a good place to look. I also have a website, but it's got like kind of an unwieldy 
uh, URL because I'm really cheap. But if you go to my social media, you will find the link to the website. So, And that also has a lot of my updates on it. Awesome. Well, Brian, again, thanks again for, for coming on with us. Hopefully we can get together in the future, and best of luck with your podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Brian. Have Thanks, a great Brian. day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Wow. Yeah, man. That was good. That was awesome. I could, I could talk. You could tell he's a, he's a real fan like we are, and it makes it, it makes for easy conversation. Yeah, and uh, I was thinking snooker, coconut, whole deal, and he said Andre, and I was like, Whoa. I had two two in my head, and I, we were on the same wave, same wave like there. I was thinking snooker as well, but if it wasn't that one, it had to be Andre. It wasn't going to be Frankie Williams, which if you've never seen that Piper's Pit, type in Piper's Pit Frankie Williams, it is friggin' hysterical. The guy's a jobber. Yeah. And Roddy tears him apart and then beats the shit out of him at the end of it. So... Oh, uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to the book. It sounds like it's going to be an absolutely great read. I think it not being an autobiography, like he had said, a lot of times you get a slanted view. Yeah. This looks like it's going to be a very factual-based book. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. The more in-depth it got. Yeah. Like, it's it's more than just, hey, this guy wrestled and he did this. He's a World War II veteran. He, you know... The, he let this mystique go out. His brother played football at the University of Michigan, but yeah. he was like, eh, you know, it happened. You know? Yeah, you know, it's it's cool. And to know Brian's got uh, his finger on the pulse, again, oh. being a fan, he, he's not. He's like we are. We're all kind of just tired of the way it is right now. I, I think it needs a reset. Personally, like last night I couldn't watch it. Yeah, it was tough. E- even like... Even the the casual fan that I am now, I'm not. I don't watch every week like you do. Yeah, um, even... I knew I knew about the uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I knew about the um, Becky Lynch, uh, Charlotte, Charlotte, the real life, the real yeah, life yeah. bullshit, and what a disappointment that was. Yeah, the match. I was... was thought. I thought. Why don't you just at least come out and throw a couple potatoes? Yeah, I've, I've watched. And then, <laughs> you know, we've watched them wrestle now for. The better years. part of the last seven or eight years. And to me, yeah, it was another Charlotte Becky match. It wasn't anything special. It was good wrestling. But uh Listen, I, it, I can if the Yankees and Red Sox played each other all the time, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't be special. It doesn't Correct. matter. Yep. So they need they need to bring more people to the top. Yeah, they do. I mean the start stop and start stuff, they like Bianca Belair was on such a trajectory to be big. And they brought Becky back and had her beat her in 30 seconds. Yeah. And now she's That was back the girl kinda, with the whip, right? Yeah. Kind of yeah. like back in the mid-card. Um, I, I think we're on the same page. AEW right now seems to be where it's at. Well, they're more of a reset. But yeah. I, he did bring up a valid point. He was pushing his book. We get it. But it was a wrestling talk the whole time. Yeah. He he brought up a very valid point. And how... The first time I remember somebody standing in the middle of the ring and talking was a Piper's Pit, like WrestleMania 5, and Morton Downey Jr. came out. And I think awesome. it was more for the show. Yeah. Yep. And then all of a sudden, it was like, in an attitude error, they started taking over the show. There's nothing worse than going to a live show and sitting on your hands for 20 minutes with some idiot stands in a ring and holds court. Yeah, especially when it's something you don't care about. It's time filler. And I honestly think three hours of raw hurts. Yeah, because you're for you're you're doing you're forced to do stuff. Listen, when we used to go to raw, it started at nine p.m. 
Yep, they were out of there by 11. But the thing was, at 8 p.m., they do a couple superstars matches. So that was the warm-up. Yeah. Now, it's starting at 7 with a couple superstar matches. People, my point being, in today's day and age, people want what they want, and they want to be done and done. Yeah, that's it's it. too much. Like, if you went to a professional baseball game and it was an hour and a half, would you care? No. I no, you want to care. Awesome. You got your nine innings. You were there. You're good. Yeah. Who cares? You don't like, want to sit there for four and you, a half hours People now. are always like this now. They want to go and go to nothing. Yeah. They want to do nothing, right? Yeah, it's weird. It's like we live in a whole Seinfeld thing. You're hurrying up to do nothing. Yeah, it's true. Right? And why why sit for hours upon hours? Every Monday night, three hours? Yeah, it's a lot. Right? It's a lot. I, I say go back to your four major pay-per-views and then use one Monday night as a super show. Fuck them other, pay, you know, quote-unquote pay-per-views. Sure. And just do a super show. But it, it's wrestling needs a reset. And I do think the more I'm starting to look at it, I think WWE is for sale. Yeah, it's it's really... Or, or how about this? Is it for lease or is it for sale? No, I think it's going to be for sale. Okay, so then do you think they're going to have to change the name? I say yes. Because uh, I think whatever is WWF, because when he bought it from his dad, it was WWWF. Yeah. And then he changed WWF because he had to get the F out. Yeah. And then it's WWE, but I have a feeling it's going to have to be some version of WWE, but called something different. A rebranding. A rebranding because if, and not for nothing, if I'm Vince, I built it, I finish it. I want it. Yeah, it's that's mine. it. Whatever it is, you can have it now. You want it, you want to use whatever video. Whenever I'm done, you're gonna pay my family for it or whatever. But yeah, the, you name it what you want. Yeah, you know, but like, I think it's funny. He Brian also dove into the uh, spectacle. I guess that is Vince McMahon. Yeah. So awesome interview. Great Very interview. Looking it. forward to the book, and then I'm looking forward to his next book, the yeah. superhero book. That's cool. We might have to get him back on for that one. That'd be awesome. But we might also have to hit him with the kendo stick if we don't get invited to his podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So, All right, fuck it up, Winnie. All right, pal. For GMAC and Brian Solomon, it's Winnie, and it's been the Outlaw Blitz interview podcast. And as always, take it deep.